Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Piria and Elizabeth Zhovkova. In today's episode, we are diving into the transformative world of Dr. Alexander Daisy Ginsberg. Cambridge University and Royal College of Art graduate makes artworks that explore our fraught relationships with nature and technology. Through her practice, Ginsberg explores subjects as diverse as artificial intelligence, synthetic biology, conservation, and evolution as she investigates the human impulse to better the world. In this candid conversation, we ask Daisy about her ongoing interspecies artwork entitled Pollinator Pathmaker, the unique artwork made from 7,000 plants from 64 species, seeks to challenge what a garden is and who it is for. This conscious art project is coming into full bloom this May at the Eden Project in Cornwall, followed by the Serpentine in London. Daisy, thank you so much for doing this conversation with us. We would like to share with our audience your artistic and personal journeys, which seem to be intricate and multi-layered. Coming from an architecture and design background, entering art spaces, through your work you create multifaceted investigative installations that open global conversations to change the world for the better. Can you please tell us where does this journey start and where this critical impulse for a change comes from? It's great to be with, with you here today. And but well, I can sort of explain a bit about my practice, maybe by where I'm now and how I started. So at the moment, I'm working at landscape scale. So using technology to investigate our relationship to the natural world, but actually at the moment doing this through creating gardens designed from the perspective of pollinators and what they need rather than human aesthetics. And I guess that's unusual because I come from an architecture background. Originally, I did my first degree in architecture where I was taught to think about the world from the human perspective and creating shelter, creating buildings and creating our sort of living environment for the needs of humans. And I think in the last 20 years, architecture practice has sort of broadened and is becoming more aware of its environmental impacts. Um, but I think, you know, we know that the built environment is a very large contributor to carbon emissions and environmental damage. So I, pra- I started practicing architecture as a sort of part one assistant at a firm in London and realized within about four months that this was a terrible idea and I wasn't going to be an architect. And it took, I took a sort of very winding path to end up where I am now. So I then moved into urbanism and I was really fortunate to work at the, uh, it's called the Architecture and Urbanism Unit and it was part of City Hall, the Great London Authority in London. And Richard Rogers, the architect, was giving a day a week to think about the long-term future of London and networks of green spaces, thinking really far into the future about how the city could be recreated or or made better and this was for me the first sort of 
inkling that the future existed, I think, or that design in some way or architecture in some way had some role to play in shaping people's lives. And I just, you know, I was very sheltered. I just hadn't really understood that's what we did at architecture school. And this was really extraordinary for me. I was let out into East London, into the Royal Docks, for example, and just told to make maps. And so what kind of maps? So any maps. So I was making smell maps. This was in about 2005, I think. And I went from there to Harvard for a year. And I had this amazing year where I was allowed to study anything. I, had, I was a visiting student. And I was meant to be studying landscape architecture, which now where I am now, 15 years later, seems that I've, I've come full circle. But I got distracted at the time and ended up doing animation and learning about product design and meeting people from MIT, from the media lab. And suddenly the doors opened and it was a room full of robots. And this was a completely different world for me. And these pieces started to come together. I ended up on a course at the Royal College of Art called Design Interactions, which was, again, something completely new for me where Tony Dunn and Fiona Raby, who really sort of cemented this, this field of critical design um, and speculative design, had um, set up a course where we were looking at the social, cultural and ethical implications of emerging technologies through design, using it in a critical way. And I didn't understand what any of this meant. And this was completely new sort of language for me because I had not necessarily been trained as a, as a designer, and suddenly we were using design to sort of look back on itself and to look back at the things that humans make and, and look using design as a critical tool to understand sort of human activity. And it was at that time I got really interested in a new field of genetic engineering called synthetic biology. So I said this was a winding path and a long story to end up creating gardens, but the I was completely entranced by this field that, again, I knew nothing about. I discovered there were engineers coming into biology from computer science, civil engineering, and they were saying that biologists who'd been doing genetic engineering, and again, this is a funny switch of words, that the genetic engineers were biologists. These en true engineers were coming in saying, this is an engineering, let's make life an engineering discipline. So they were saying, well, DNA could be programming code and we could make machines out of living things and make useful things for humans. And I spent about 10 years hanging out with synthetic biologists. And it really made me think about what is design. You know, humans are designing living things and it's a completely alien space in a way to think about design traditionally. But it was a really, in a way, sort of clear a new field to think about what does it mean to design things and why do we design things? And what I learned really was that at the core of design is this sort of utopian belief that, that we can make things better. And there's this, uh, the sociologist Richard Howells talks about the sort of utopian impulse of creativity that I make something because I want to improve my circumstances. I'm cold, so I'll make a blanket, or I need shelter, I'll make a building. It's about changing the existing to something better. And what I could recognize from all the people I was working with, both in design and technology and in synthetic biology, was that everyone was really keen to make the world a better place. And they thought they had the way to make it better. And the more I heard this and a mantra, we're going to make things better, I began to ask, well, what is better? 
and who's better is being delivered and, and who gets to decide. And I, I went back to do a PhD to, to think about those questions. And then <laughs> so emerged from that and, and, and started to look more broadly at this question of how we as humans, and say we very broadly, because there's many, many humans and many different belief systems, but in this, the, the silo of Western modernity, how we've tried to think about what a better world is by emancipating ourselves from the natural world. Better means effectively destroying what's around us. And it's a very short-sighted way of thinking about what a better world is. It's about better in, in the present and very near future, not about long-term bettering. Um, the work I've made since then has been really still using technology, but in a way to reflect back on itself and to reflect on why we make the technology and why we, the choices that are made are made and, and how this affects our relationship with nature. So in the last few years, I, I made a piece, for example, where I reconstructed the Dawn Chorus using AI, using generative adversarial networks. So the same technology behind deep fakes. And the idea was to bring attention to the loss of the Dawn Chorus, this sort of insidious loss of bird populations. And we think of it as because of habitat loss, but it's also because of noise and light pollution and building envelope shapes and birds are not able to sing and hear each other. And so they can't find mates and, and it sort of escalates and cascades. But building a piece where you go inside a gallery to hear an artificial dawn chorus as a way to bring attention to something that's outside is um, strange. So the sort of haunting chorus of machine made bird sounds is a very sort of perverse and ironic almost way to experience it. But at the same time, it raises this question for me of why do we invest so much money in these kinds of technologies and not in preserving the extraordinary intelligence that already exists in the world around us. So the jump for me sort of to where I am right now after the pandemic and all that's gone on where I'm creating these different kinds of works now is in a way in response to my own sense of panic and, and lack of agency. I make it, I've been making pieces that sit in a gallery and ask people to reflect on extinction and human action. And now I wanted to do something where I could have agency. And that was the start of Pollinator Pathmaker, which is this project to and campaign and, uh, and sets of installations to create um, artworks for other species, so for pollinators. And the best kind of artwork for a pollinator is the aesthetic experience of a garden that's been designed for them and not for, for human. And the human is just the caretaker. Thank you for sharing more about your artistic practice and journey, Daisy. Um, you mentioned your new interspecies artwork entitled Pollinator Pathmaker. This current project transforms how we see gardens and who we make them for. What's the story behind it? So, Pollinator Pathmaker really sort of came out of the beginning of the pandemic and it was a commission or a pitch for a commission for the Eden Project in Cornwall. And the Eden Project is an ecological attraction. It's in an old clay pit and it's famous for these biomes, these sort of big bubbles with a rainforest in one and a Mediterranean biome in another. And it's very different to a botanic garden, for example, the botanic garden is a collection of plants and it's on display 
for, for the visitors. And it's really a product of some colonial activity. It's the collection of species from elsewhere in the world and brought together and showcased as a, as a collection. And Eden is a bit different because it's, it's, it still has these collections of plants, but it's, its mission is less about the archive so much and more about engaging the audience with the natural world, inspiring a sense of awe but, and connection, but also a sense of jeopardy. And the bit that really excited me is was this intention to instill hope and agency as well, that people leave feeling that they can do something or want to do something. And the, the commission was for a sculpture, to make a sculpture about pollinators, to bring attention to the jeopardy they face. Now, I had no idea that pollinators, I think of bees when I think of pollinators, the bees going to flowers and collecting nectar and, in the, and pollen and then carrying it from flower to flower and plants need pollinators to reproduce. Most plants are, um, also plants are either wind pollinated or insect or animal pollinated and most do need help and they've co-evolved with their pollinators. So I was thinking about making, well, making an artwork to represent the, uh, or communicate the jeopardy they face. And in Germany, for example, 70% of insects have disappeared in the last 30 years. And without insects, basically, we're completely, you know, it's, it's end game <laughs> for crops, ecosystems, everything. So I thought, well, there's 55 meters of, of this amazing um, space at Eden available for five years. Why am I going to use loads of materials to make something, to talk about this? And why don't I just make something that's useful for pollinators? So I proposed making an artwork for them. And the way I decided that, that this could happen was to try and eliminate my taste and my bias of what a garden should look like. And so to create a living artwork, but where I wasn't choosing what it would look like, that I wouldn't get distracted by you know, nice arrangements of plants or the way that a human would see it. And I started looking at, at how pollinators experience nature um, or the ways that humans have studied and tried to interpret this. And for example, bees see colors differently to us. They have humans see red, green, and blue, but bees see blue, green, and UV. So when they look at a flower, it looks different. They perceive depth differently. So they can see it very well when they're close up to get further away, it's blurry but they have a different flicker threshold, which means when they fly past the flowers, they see them, whereas to us, it would be blurry. So if you start to think about what does a garden look like as you're experiencing it through these different senses, not to mention smell and other things, suddenly you think, well, garden, is it's not just for us, it's, it's for other species. And then, for example, butterflies see color, color differently again, and, and different butterflies see color differently. So if you create a garden, for other species that, you know, it's so complex. <laughs> I decided that we would create an algorithm to solve this for us. And the algorithm is designed to create the most empathetic gardens for other species. And I worked with an amazing computer science, scientist and um, he's called Shemek Vitichik. And he's like, well, Daisy, okay, this is great. But like, what does an empathetic garden mean? You need to define it. An algorithm is a set of rules and, and you just need to tell me what the problem is you want to solve. So I said, well, let's define empathy as maximizing diversity of pollinators. So we need to create a garden that's going to serve not just bees, but also butterflies and wasps and moths and ants and beetles and, and so on. So we created a database of plants and there's surprisingly little research about 
which pollinators visit which plants. So this was this huge research task. We have about 150 plants in this database and we know which pollinators visit them. We know when they come into flower, lots of other interesting things about them. And the algorithm is then creating a, a planting scheme. And um, you can actually play with the algorithm on, on our website, pollinator.art. And you can play with some of the, the ways it solves the problem, but every single time it generates a garden is balancing out the planting so it serves the most pollinator species possible. And that's, this means also blooming across the year, which is not something that had ever occurred to me. Is why do flowers bloom at different times? It's because that's when the pollinators emerge because they've co-evolved. And suddenly when you start to create a garden like this, you realize that, well, I've made this garden design, but that bit's a bit ugly, or I don't like that. And you're like, well, no, it's not for me. I don't get to choose. It's good. You know, I don't really like geraniums. There's loads of geraniums, um, but they're not for me. I, my job is just to plant them and look after them. So Eden, we've planted the first of these gardens and it's 55 meters long. And we're planting one very soon in London for the Serpentine Gallery in Hyde Park. And that one's across 240 meters of the park. And the next is in Berlin um, with our partners Light Art Space there. And alongside this, I mentioned the website, pollinator.art. And the idea that really came out of the pandemic and this was the beginning of lockdown in 2020. I was stuck at home and I wanted to, you know, I was like, I could garden, but all the garden centers in the UK were shut. And I, had, I think a lot of people had this urge to be outside, we were all locked inside and to at least buy seeds and be able to grow things at home. And you could get seeds in the post. And suddenly I was looking at this and it's like, well, in theory, I could have the whole installation in an envelope. I could be sent a whole artwork. All my other works were locked in museums and in storage. And suddenly I was holding a packet of seeds and it's like, this could be a whole artwork. And I could plant it at home and it would you know, self-install in a way. So I propose that we make this website where anyone can play with the algorithm and create a garden design and then plant their own. And that's where the agency really comes in is that it's a sort of call for creative activism that as a member of the public, you can do this for free, but the investment you make, there is financial investment, buying plants or finding a space to plant if you don't have a garden. So suddenly you're becoming an activist, turning a disused flower bed or roundabout or community space garden into a pollinator park maker garden. And in a way it's the anti-NFT. So you're making a digital artwork online, but you don't have to pay for it, what you have to pay for the plants and you have to pay with your time to care for it um, and on the website you can just keep on creating garden designs till you like it you enter your garden conditions how big it is and you get a plant list but you can also explore this garden as a digital space so you can fly through it like a pollinator see it in an approximation of the colors that pollinators might see and you can um, watch it through the season so it's really thinking about the garden as a dynamic space and dynamic, not just for us, but for other species as well. Thank you, Daisy. 
your general practice examines the relationship between nature and technology. Your means of communication ranges from artificial intelligence, synthetic biology, conservation, biodiversity, and a multitude of sciences, as we can see from an example with Pollinator uh, Pathmaker. Can you give us more examples of your work that brings society into science, drawing a thin line between several mediums? As well as, I would really love to know um, more about synthetic aesthetics, where you are a leading author, which is focusing on synthetic biology. I would say I've gone through this sort of winding journey to get where I am. And what unifies the practice is sort of experimenting with, with other fields and getting, um, getting messy in fields that I know nothing about. And through this process of not knowing in a way responding to what I'm learning as I go along. So I started out working with synthetic biologists and spending time in the lab and experiencing also the, the way of field of techno science, a, a new kind of technology, how it's built, who gets to be powerful, who gets to make decisions, how does it get funded and how does this thing move forward? So I, I was really lucky to get involved in that field quite early. So, I mean, we don't think about genetic engineering except for the, very much you know the we think about gm foods and the controversy around that but things like insulin and and vaccines are all made using this these kinds of technologies so you know yeast or bacteria engineered to produce chemicals for humans that's the, the kind of very basic um application is you know a vat full of, of microbes <laughs> the same way that you make beer fermenting and producing useful things for humans um, and also you know what synthetic biology raises are all these questions about designing living matter and the ethics of doing that and what does it mean to exploit other organisms for our benefit and it's it's maybe easier for us to feel affection for a cow or another engineered organism like a dog um, it's been bred for our pleasure than a microbe, um, but it is still a way of applying design. And I think what's interesting for me there also is thinking about, well, what does it mean for something to be alive? And if you're changing its function into being a machine, you know, what is this lifelikeness? And some synthetic biologists are actually trying to build life from scratch thinking about what are the basic building blocks to, to describe something as living. You know, if you, can you make a cell function by building it from parts? And that raises questions that are quite similar to what artificial intelligence is trying to do, is it's trying to create lifelikeness in some ways. And this question of, of living matter as a material is raised there as well. Like what's different between a rhinoceros and AI, you know, that if they're both intelligent. Um, and that leads into some of the other pieces that I've made recently. One is called The Substitute. And it's looking at this, this question, this paradox of why do humans invest or why, and I say humans is a very broad term, why as Western technological societies is so much being invested in things like artificial intelligence and so little in, con in conserving the natural world. And the substitute looks at this by um, kind of focusing on the case of the northern white rhino, which is a subspecies of rhino. And in 2018, 
there were three individuals left, two females, one male, and then Sudan, the male, died. And suddenly there is no future left for this, this species. And I was really, really struck by this. And at the time I was on a panel <laughs> at the Science Museum in London discussing artificial life. Could we, should we, will we? And the scientists were saying, you know, the debate is whether we'll be able to control consciousness once, once we've made it. And I was sitting there thinking, we can't even control ourselves not to kill rhinos. You know, why are we suddenly going to all come to an agreement about how AI should be managed and be able to control it when we can't control our impulses? And you know, I have never gone and killed a rhino, but I've eaten meat. I've done, you know, it's 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 not a, it's all a spectrum in a way. And so you can't say I'm absolved. I can't absolve myself from guilt. I haven't done much to protect rhinos. Um, so I'm in a way implicated in the way the way this all works. So the substitute is a recreation or reconstruction of a of a northern white rhino, very hyper real, and he's um, comes to life in front of you. He's in a virtual space. It's a five meter projection, a white box, a bit like a diorama you'd see in a natural history museum. And this rhino starts from a few blocks and starts to come into more and more lifelike um, resolution. And then he eventually comes up to you at the, at the front of the, this virtual room and he's face to face with you. And he's 1.8 meters tall and he looks you in the eye and then he disappears. And the piece is um, informed also by developments in AI and this creation of artificial um, so artificial life. So he is a representative of um, of a species, but he's not, he's imperfect. He's an imperfect copy because he's not a rhinoceros. He's a digital projection. He's an archival copy and he's a sort of mishmash of different rhinos. He's neither male nor female. So I'm saying he, because I feel affectionate to him, but um, it is genderless. Um, it's uh, the sounds of the comp a compilation of the sounds of different individuals within a, a pack of northern white rhinos from the zoo in the, in the Czech Republic, including Sudan. So he's not a true representation. He's not a rhino, but maybe this is the rhino that we deserve, or maybe this is what we need is, is just the interaction with the rhino as an object. He's no longer a social being in context. He's just a, a treasure, like a, an artifact to look at. Our last question for you is related to your PhD thesis entitled Better. As we live in such warring and troubled times, what roles do you think artists play in today's world and do you envision a true change? What is your forecast for the near future? <laughs> um, so I laugh because, you know, the world we're living in is, I don't know, it's pretty brutal right now, but it always is. That's the world, I think. Um, so my my PhD actually wasn't envisioning a better future. And I point that out because I don't know what a better future is. Um, I think it's it's you know I I ask these questions in it of what is better, whose better is being delivered, and who gets to decide. So really thinking about these empty promises that we hear about making a better world and the the lack of questioning that goes into what that actually means so better for me is very different to better for you better for me you know three minutes ago 
was different to what I'm saying now. Um, you know, half an hour ago, I was drinking, um, you know, out of a plastic bottle because, you know, I've got, you know, it's in my fridge and I bought that thing and I'm thirsty and I want, you know, I want my yogurt drink <laughs> that I was drinking. But I also now talking about pollution and the environmental crisis. And obviously that's not better to have made that, that purchase. Um, but at the same time, it's good for society because I'm helping the economy and I help to pay taxes and, you know, pays for hospitals and, and it's just messy. And that's the world. So I'm very suspicious when people talk about making a better world, because what is missing is the, the debate and discussion and agreement about what that better means and who is actually defining it. And you can look at, there are some ways of thinking about it where you can say, well, that does seem good, like the sustainable development goals. Um, but if you are, you know, trying to deal with your survival today, that's not relevant to you and thinking about the future in those terms is not relevant um you're thinking about now today and that's the problem <laughs> there isn't a better world because our, our needs change for me I can say for my position of safety and luxury being in London and you know being a privileged person and um you know working in the way that I do that I say well a better world is one where future generations and other species get to enjoy the same ecosystem, environmental conditions that humans and organisms have been enjoying, and the, you know, without total destruction of the natural environment. But that's a, a luxury. I'm not um, fighting for my survival. I'm not particularly confident that humanity or those in power representing the future of humanity and the natural world are going to get back together and I think I have to maintain a spirit of, of what Christiana Figueres talks about as stubborn optimism but every day I'm panicking and I think that we all should be as much as we can um, do that you know and that is a luxury as well um, like to think about panic about you know the climate as a luxury is extraordinary but that's where I think we're at it's it's um you know to have the space to be able to to think into the future um but I'm not very confident and I think a lot of people are in the same boat thinking you know this is what is the world going to be like in 20 years time um you know all of these things are interconnected and it is only going to get more fraught, the wars that we may see, the, the crises that we may see as a result of this is completely terrifying. So I know that pollinator pathmaker gardens are not going to solve these problems. But in a way, my deepest desire with the project is to give access away through art. And it's just one tool. It's the tool that I work with to get people to develop an intimate relationship with plants and pollinators. The, the ability to, you know, like why buy an NFT when you can look at a plant and watch an insect pollinate it? Um, and that moment of contemplation, that is a huge, in itself, a huge luxury to be able to, you know, in the world that we live in today, to have garden space to, or to somewhere where you can plant and experience nature in that way 
it's crazy that it's a luxury and a privilege. So I want, you know, if I want to take the time to grow a plant and watch it be pollinated and look after it and to encourage other people, give people the um, motivation or the tools to be able to learn how to do that, I think it's really powerful because then you feel a sense of stewardship and a sense of care. But it's a very, 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 very small piece of the puzzle and it's not going to change the world, but it will um, hopefully give joyful experiences um, and interactions with nature and and in a way transform the way you look at it a little bit so when I planted my DIY edition that I made on the on pollinator.art and I bought these plants and it was expensive and I put them in the ground and then I thought oh god now I've got to learn how to look after this and it's not for me it's and now these plants are finally emerging after the winter and every day I'm like wow there's three more leaves and I've never looked at plants that closely before and it's such fun and that's yeah that's the joyful bit and that's I think one of the things that art can do is transform the way you look at the world and even in this little way making you focus on a on a bumblebee and think about which bumblebee is it is a really good thing. Daisy, thank you so much for the honest conversation and good luck with your show. I thank you for having me and thank you for the wonderful questions and it's um I just hope you're gonna be looking at bumblebees <laughs> and <laughs> trying to identify them. Um because they've all got these little stripy jumpers and they all look different. Um but I can't tell them apart yet.